Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Welcome to another amazing Homo Superior creator crush. I'm Adam, and co-hosting with me today is a man who's more owl than human, Kaylin. Hi, Kaylin. Who? I mean, hi. (laughs) Creator Crush is an interview series where we chat with our favorite comic book creators, learning more about their work, their thoughts on the industry, and what makes them so darn special. Our guest today is an amazing queer writer, Steve Fox. If you didn't know, he's the writer of the porn-tastic gamer graphic novel, Cheater Code from Limerus Press, Spider-Ham, Great Power, No Responsibility from Graphics, and most importantly for this X-Men-based podcast, the recently released X-Men, House of 92. He's also co-written the graphic novels Rainbow Bridge and Party and Prey, along with our first creator crush, Steve Orlando. If you haven't read any of those, turn off this podcast, go read them, and then come back and listen. Hiya, Steve. Welcome to Homo Superior. Hello. Thank thank you for having me. And uh, I feel the need to clarify that Horntastic only applies to the first book you listed and not (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Ham. And and the rest is a list. There was an Oxford comma in the writing. I probably should have said, let's stop there. But But technically, he is a pig. So let's... (laughs) Well, listen, what you can find on the recesses of Twitter is between you and your God. (laughs) Porktastic, I think, is what I meant to say. There you go. Leave Um, meeting. (laughs) Uh, how are you doing? What's going on today? I'm doing great. Yeah, I, I'm just working and staying busy. Um, Steve Orlando and I were just in uh, Annapolis, Maryland for a signing at Third Eye, um, which is a wonderful shop. Um, one of the nicest I've ever been to. Um, X-Men 92 number one came out last week. So riding high on the very nice response to that and working on all sorts of other fun stuff. Amazing. Well, we are more than excited to talk about 92. Uh, you have two super fans of the book. Um, so let's just kind of really jump in and talk about your exponentially growing collection of work. All right. So, you know, as Adam mentioned, many times we're huge X-Men fans. This is first and foremost an X-Men based uh, podcast. So what drew you to set the story within the animated series continuity? Well, so that's, that's how it came to me, um, because as you know, it's the 30th anniversary of X-Men 92 this year. Um, the last X-Men 92 the series they did with uh, Chris Sims and Chad Bowers writing, and um, I think Scott Koblish and a couple other people drawing it, was out for the 25th anniversary. Um, so, you know, they like to, to revisit this series every once in a while. It was a big deal. It certainly helped get me into comics as a, as a kid. Um, and I was just extremely grateful to get asked to do this, especially um, when Jordan. So the, the mandate was not to do House of X to adapt this era. Right. But Jordan had the offhand idea of, you know, wouldn't it be wild to try to make that fit? Because one of the very fun things about X-Men, the animated series, and one of the reasons I think it was such a great gateway to the comics is that it directly adapted a lot of classic storylines. And the way it did that was by um, fitting characters who were popular in 1992 into storylines they didn't always play a role in. You know, obviously Gambit and Jubilee were not around for the Dark Phoenix saga and, and you know, Bishop wasn't part of Days of Future Past. But I think that's one of the unique charms of the animated series is that it, it made it work. And so for a lot of us growing up, you know, by the time we read the Dark Phoenix saga, we were probably expecting these people to show up. Um, so that's how X-Men 92, House of 92, um, which 
almost every podcast I've done has read the subtitle differently. Uh, but it, that, <laughs> I, had to, is... I had to literally write it out to, to, <laughs> to introduce you because I kept saying, I kept thinking Charlie XCX. Yeah. It's been a really <laughs> ongoing battle for me to not keep thinking House of XCX. Yeah, so that's how House of Charlie XCX came to be. It was a, it's an anniversary, <laughs> it's a celebration. And, the, and I'm such a huge fan of every era of the X-Men and I have so much respect and excitement for the current one that this was really just like an absolute dream opportunity. Well, growing up, did you have a favorite character from the animated series and why was it Storm? <laughs> <laughs> I do love Storm. My favorite character, however, was Cyclops because I was a goody two-shoes. I liked following rules. Mm -hmm. I liked pleasing authority figures. I was at school early asking for extra homework, all of which is, you know, 90s Scott Summers. I have a Cyclops tattoo, actually, as, as a cat. I love oh, that. That's so cool. Oh, that's yeah. oh, it's a cat. Wait, is that a cat? Yeah, it's a Maneki Neko, a luck cat. But oh, it's Cyclops. My is, oh, yeah. Uh, in his original, you know, in a famously visual medium of podcasts. <laughs> we'll take a picture and yeah, put it on. Well, yes. and see, I, I, I'm very pro Cyclops too. We actually have this like this battle. Well, I don't think it's so much a battle because a lot of people don't like Wolverine on our on the five on the five of us on our <laughs> podcast. But like in general, I was like the same way. I was like Cyclops was just trying to get his job fucking done. Let him like come on, guys, listen up. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, as a kid, I was just like, oh, that's the coolest guy. He follows all the rules and he's like, <laughs> he's responsible. <laughs> he does have a great costume. I mean, I think he, of all like the 92 era X-Men, his was probably my favorite. Yeah, I, I make a rule of not like seeking out stuff on Twitter that I'm not tagged in because, you know, I don't need to know and folks should feel free to express whatever they want. But a Cyclops fan account um, tagged me in something very positive. And they were like, release the hair because, you know, the <laughs> 90s outfit, for whatever reason, those head socks are just always going to be like the coolest thing in the world to me, like Gambit, Havoc, Cyclops. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th th that made a huge impact on me as a kid, which, of, you know, of course, those don't translate to live action. Like, <laughs> that's not something that can exist in a cool way in the real world. Um, but that's that's the beauty of comics is it doesn't have to. <laughs> right. So let's get into the first issue. So again, if you haven't read uh, House of 92, issue one, turn off this podcast, go read it, then come back. But spoilers, Jubilee is essentially playing the role that Moira McTaggart did in the original House of X, Powers of 10. Uh, how did you decide that this small babe who loves chili fries would be reincarnated over and over again and remember her past lives? So, it, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier is that part of the fun of the animated series was seeing how they would put characters that were popular then into roles to fill, you know, other slots in classic stories. So you might not have Colossus or Nightcrawler or whoever else in, you know, Dark Phoenix Saga on the cartoon, but you have Gambit and, and Beast who, you know, didn't play a big role the first time around and, and stuff like that. So... I knew when we started talking about adapting House of X, it can get tricky to like 10 X, <laughs> 92, 92. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we started talking about adapting the Krakoan era, it, it's so recent and it's ongoing. You know, if you want to read House of X by Hickman and, and everyone else, you can just go out and do that right now. It's not inaccessible. It's not hard to find. Mm -hmm. And for most of us, it's very recent in our memory. So Jordan White, the editor, and I really wanted to 
make this distinct because it is basically a what if story you know it it doesn't carry that banner but this is a what if story rather than a direct uh you know wikipedia entry (laughs) (laughs) if you spend four dollars on this comic i want you to get something that feels familiar but also surprises you and has new developments that are going to be unique to these five issues that salve and i are doing when it came time to fill the moira role moira did appear on the animated series so there's no reason you couldn't have done it the same way. However, that was one of the most entertaining dominoes to knock down to start setting up a distinct story. Um, and also we, we settled on Jubilee. We talked about a couple different characters and Jubilee, once we started talking about her, really felt like the most exciting one because she's so tied to the 90s. You know. A, a great thing about the X-Men, and one of the reasons I think the franchise has always been so popular, is that they almost always have a point of view character for younger readers, whether that's um, Kitty Pride, Jubilee, Marrow, um, Pixie, Armor, you know, it goes on and on. And most of those characters have had multiple lives. They've had revivals, especially Kate Pride. Jubilee, because she's so tied to that mall rat vibe, because she's tied to, you know, a yellow jacket and roller skates and these one-liners, I think a lot of people kind of have her frozen in the 90s in her memory, in in their memories. So it was both a way to like celebrate her, make her cool and central to the plot and pick someone who is really emblematic of the cartoon and of that era. Like you cannot get more 90s than Jubilee, Jubilee. Uh, unless it had been, you know, Adam X when you <laughs> got to that page. <laughs> Introduced for the first time in a, yeah. Yeah, and I think the reaction to that would have been who <laughs> from a lot of people, so. <laughs> we would have loved it, but yes. You and about it. five other people, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, no, you're definitely hitting the nail on Like I, uh, for our, like I'm one of the, the persons that started on the cartoon show. So I was definitely like going back to reread comics or, see events actually happening i'm like wait who is involved and what happened that's not what happened on the cartoon show i thought it was the exact same thing so i definitely would have been one of those uh, to be what was going on um so i do you already kind of alluded to this but i do have to ask one of our listeners dave the comic book herald wants to know were there any other characters like, obviously you said there were but like could you give us a sense of who they were and why they might have been chosen well And, you know, maybe this is pulling back the curtain a little too much, but I'm not the first one to say it. The version of Morph who appears on the show Mm. is legally distinct from the version in the comics. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about Morph and we got pretty excited about that possibility. But ultimately, that's not a character Marvel Comics is currently using. Um, And it would have had to be like the Exiles Morph or Changeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at that point you're really getting far afield from the animated series. So it said who? Yeah, yeah I know. I mean, t- talk about a, a who. Um, but this is something Chris Sims talked about when they did X-Men 92 is that, you know, Morph is, it, that version of Morph in that outfit with that attitude is a, is a creation of the TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really the main other one. And we talked some, about some wilder possibilities um, about it being, uh, President Kelly, because um, mm. that would have been similar to like the Moira gag, mm-hmm. um, or uh, I mentioned Strife because Strife is so '90s and wild. Um, but really, it just Jubilee just made the most sense. And the other thing was it was important to me 
to make the powers make sense somehow. You know, with Moira, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter because she's never had powers before. With an existing character, an existing mutant, you want it to be something where you can squint with comic book logic and say, okay, I understand. <laughs> so taking Jubilee, who I have always thought is a cool character, but who often gets reduced to like the fireworks girl mm-hmm. and to say like, oh no, it's not just fireworks. She's capable of like a full big bang. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is comic book science I can get behind. <laughs> um, and, and you'll see more of that in issue two where we do get to see some past lives of Jubilee, which I had a lot of fun putting together. Um, so yeah, th- that's really how it, it settled on to Jubilee. But we talked about Morph. We talked about Strife. We talked about maybe Rachel Summers who never appeared on mm-hmm. the show. But it really, Jubilee was the one who emerged as like, this is how to represent the 90s. I do miss it being, uh, not being Myra, just so I could hear the voice actress in my head of her going, Charles. <laughs> I mean, that's certainly the best part of writing this entire thing is just hearing all of the voice actors in my head at all times, like, <laughs> channeling their, their spirits into the words on the page. Well, we definitely thought you captured it really well. The voices, I should say. I said, even on our last podcast, when we were reviewing the first issue, I could remember tasting the Cocoa Puffs I was eating as a kid, <laughs> like in my parents' living room in front of the TV. Uh, with that said, another one of our listeners, Ryan, uh, he wants to know, which character's voice was the most difficult for you to capture? You know, I mean, they all kind of stressed me out equally because X-Men fans, as you know, are very passionate, uh, myself included. And I know that even just a little wavering in expectations and like people could have eaten me alive. Mm-hmm. I would say the ones that came easiest in my head were Rogue and Storm because they're probably the ones I've spent the most time quoting over the years. Um <laughs> And, and just hearing on repeat in my head. The tougher ones came more from the contrast between a character's current iteration mm. and like the cartoon in the 90s. So for instance, you know, on the cartoon and at, in 1992, Charles Xavier uh, was a little more trustworthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. For sure. A, a little bit more of like just a, a like, yeah, like a, a kind mentor figure. And, and ultimately because the storyline relies on him being somewhat shady. I think he was like a tougher one to balance. Um, And then the other one wasn't so much a challenge, but it was bittersweet, which was beast because Mm. I love classic beast. Like it's, I think his evolution into uh, a completely morally bankrupt, (laughs) like (laughs) dark beast monster uh, is very interesting narratively, um, but it was bittersweet to write 90s Beast and be like, oh man, you you were like the fun, the fun college professor for a long time. And mm-hmm. now you're horrible, but in an entertaining way. I like to say that he was Kelsey Grammer as Frasier in the show. And now he's Kelsey Grammer IRL in the <laughs> comics. Yeah, pretty much. What a what I, a depressing yet accurate way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as we were reading the issue, we noticed that Psylocke had this sort of small, but obviously significant role. We were wondering, is this Betsy Braddock? Is it Quanon? Or don't worry about it. 
that's uh, you know i'm gonna borrow a term from uh, connor and, and cerebrocast and say uh don't worry about it <laughs> there might be there might be a joke about it later on in the series but of course in 1992 that was betsy raddick which now we know is you know a, a little bit um some of those decisions didn't age great right uh and now we have two really wonderful interesting characters in the comics uh, yeah um but yes, you know, obviously that is Betsy for 1992 and, and we joke about it uh, in issue three, but I didn't want to put too fine a point on it because of course that is, you know, a complicated subject. Um, that's fair enough. So you, you kind of <laughs> talked, you, you, you mentioned this a little bit already about what we could expect in issue two, but, you know, we've got another four issues. Uh, we want this to be ongoing, but we know it's a limited series. <laughs> Without getting into spoilers, you know, is there anything else we should be kind of looking out for? Any hints that you could give us? Yeah. So one of the things I was very excited for solicits to get out past issue two, because when it was first announced, I think a lot of people assumed the series was going to just cover House of X. But as you saw in issue one, we covered a lot of House of X. Mm -hmm. Right. Anything from the Krakoan era is fair game in this book. Mm. And we are moving quickly and shooting big. So we already know from the solicits that issue three is X of Swords. Mm -hmm. So if you think about other significant events in the Krakoan era, the biggest ones you would think of are what you're going to find in four and five. Oh, I can't wait. Very exciting. We wanted to tell, you know, the most expansive story we, we could and Again, in the spirit of the, the cartoon, they took these huge crossovers and fit them into two episodes. So right. we're doing that in, in five issues. I love it. Love it. And I yeah. actually, I counted, um, I counted the other day and over the course of the series, Salva Espin will have drawn over 160 different Marvel characters. Oh my gosh. Wow. Because we wanted to fit everybody on even if it's just in the background to like mm -hmm. see those 90s costumes see those distinct looks and, and really you know celebrate this era and thanks so much for mentioning uh Salva Espin because we love the art too it's just it's just... it's evocative of the cartoon and but it's got its own style it's dynamic it's wonderful storytelling so it's really kind of helping I think take what you have in your head and on page and it's like letting us all see it. So uh, just can't say enough nice things about well, his art. And you already knocked out a lot of characters, even in the first issue, right? Because you, you have the like Dark Star, Pyro, Cannonball. There's like a lot of guest stars yeah. popping up. Um, I think that was Karma potentially, right? In the yes. green? Yeah, okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Nailed that. We had a question on our podcast to who it might have been. Um, so yeah, no, oh, looking yeah, forward it's... to counting down the other 160. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the data page that follows uh, explains who those five are, but mm -hmm. I, I do know that some of those faces are less familiar. And so Karma is a good example. You know, that outfit, more than likely, you're not going to see it in the 616 anymore. It's a little, you know, questionable, but... <laughs> It, it's so of the era. So one of the fun things was pulling these outfits that existed in the late 80s and early 90s and specifically outfits that appeared on the TV show. Uh, Karma's in the background of, of one episode and that's mm -hmm. what she's wearing. So the, the fun thing about the Krakoan era is that they can pull costumes from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So to make this Krakoa feel distinct, 
it was really helpful to be able to pull the costumes you're just never going to see again. <laughs> like, right. like Sunfire and his armor shows up in the next issue and, and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun to find those. And did you have a creative direction to make sure the opening and closing of the book looked like Saved by the Bell art? Or was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and in fact, I did put Saved by the Bell screenshots into the, the Word document. The, Love it design team went way above and beyond um, because when when I found out I was going to get to do data pages um, I told Jordan what if we you know it would be cool if we could try to make them look 90s but I was also prepared for like oh you know we don't have the time or budget or whatever Mm -hmm. you get black text on a white page that would have been fine that you know that works great on its own Um, but I'm really grateful the design team like busted their butt to do it so specific. And not only that, but each issue, those design pages are totally different. So you're getting Mm. the saved by the bell thing in issue one, you're going to see a different like throwback vibe in issue two and three and four and five. So you're going to see some fun design stuff. And I'm, I'm really lucky that the, the design, the designers at Marvel, um, went that extra step. Yeah, no, they knocked out of the park. I can't wait to see the, uh, the additional ones. I do have, so before we move on to talk about cheater code, I do have one last question. You talked about hearing the cartoon voices in your head a lot. Is there one that you could announce to this podcast? Do you have a particular voice that you uh, mimic at all? Oh, I, I quote Storm the most. Yeah, for sure. And, <laughs> and uh, just because, you know, that Storm, she makes the most intense proclamations yeah. at all times. <laughs> and the voice actress she does almost this like, like mid-Atlantic accent kind of thing, mm-hmm. yes. like, which is such a, f- a fun and unexpected choice for Storm. Um, but no, I, I definitely quote Storm the most. And in fact, um, my boyfriend and I were out not that long ago at a bar and, and um, it's a bar with like arcade games. And there was another gay couple who were very wasted um, playing the X-Men arcade game. And the one was just like, I am Storm, bitch. <laughs> he was really feeling it. I guess my Storm voice just becomes my share voice as well. But um, me, Storm. Oh. Me, Storm. Yeah. Back on. Oh. <laughs> I love that. I we do a lot of uh, Ryan Crawls, another guy on the podcast. We do Rogue a lot, and we mm-hmm. always reference the one where she tries to steal Juggernaut's power after they get his helmet off. And then she's like, don't worry, I've got it, sugar. And then she goes, wah, and like flies with it. She's constantly screaming. I will say one last, I, there's just so many things I want to talk about this issue because I loved it so much. But Thank you didn't you. have, Gene, Gene didn't faint, I don't think. That was a surprise. Can I tell you? So the, the most common tweet I got when this got announced, Jean Grey has very passionate fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. Not only did I get tweets like begging me not to have her faint? I got tweets that were already mad at me because they assumed I was going to have her faint, which it really <laughs> says a lot about how Twitter operates. Uh, oh it's like, God. here's a book that exists. How dare you do this thing? Um, but no, Jean will not faint. Jean is oh an awesome God. character. And it's, it's a funny meme, but I, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't do that to her in the course of the series. Jean no. catches someone else who faints. So like, <laughs> it's great. I like that Roberts. I did appreciate the biggest thing was the triangulation for me of the rogue one-liner, her getting punched in the back of the face by a sentinel, and then the gambit like one-liner. I was like, this is the show. This is the show I used to watch. I love it. I mean, I've been training for 30 years. There you go. Yeah. 
You got a you got a gold star. Uh, so switching gears from the kid friendly house of ninety two to the very adult cheater code. Can you give our listeners who may not know this series as well or this book as well an elevator pitch for this graphic? And I do mean very graphic novel. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean it came out two years ago, which in like post COVID feels like thirty five years ago. It right. feels older than X Men the animated series at this point. <laughs> um, but. Cheetah Code is my original graphic novel with an artist named Daryl Toe about a video gamer who goes through a traumatic breakup and thanks to a, a, a well-timed lightning strike and an arc of a certain bodily fluid hitting his <laughs> PlayStation, he goes into the world of his video games where he goes on a journey of self-healing through uh, intimacy with, with the video games that have uh, shaped his life. So you... Um... You take Ken, by the way, Adam and I both love this series very much. Um, and Thank I was you. not expecting full-on penetration in the first two pages. I mean, <laughs> but not so, mad. No, not the mad thing about, about this book, the funniest thing about this book, and it's really something I've come to appreciate. So just like the gene fainting thing, oftentimes projects will get certain reactions that you hear over and over again. And with Rainbow Bridge, if we end up talking about that, what I never expected is that everyone tells me their dying pet story, which mm. is, I'm grateful for the trust. However, it makes doing interviews about it emotionally wrenching. <laughs> right. With Cheater Code, the reaction I get all the time, even if I say, this is 18 plus, this is explicit. This is a completely explicit graphic novel. Do not read this on the subway. Everyone is like, I didn't realize explicit me- meant explicit. <laughs> It just looks so cute on the cover, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it comes shrink-wrapped. That's why it's credited to S.A. Fox, so no parents buy it by mistake. (laughs) And that is why I put penetration on the first page, so you would have no doubt about what you were reading. (laughs) Getting into Uh, So you've got Ken, uh, the main character. You take him through a survivalist horror level, a sword and sorcery (laughs) level, Metroid level. A Mario Sonic level, and even a Tetris level. Were there any other video game genres that you really wanted to explore in the story, but you didn't get a chance to? Well, so the toughest one is that one of my favorite franchises of all time is Pokemon, but mm. I just was not going to go there. Probably a good idea. Nope, not going there. Um, not going to happen. Uh, but no, so it's funny the, the way you described it is because some of those are left, um, to me, they're specific. So like you said, it was a Metroid level to me, that's mass effect, but you know, nothing's wrong. It's yeah. different interpretations to me. The sword and sorcery one is, is, um, elder scrolls to someone else. It's world of Warcraft. Um, yeah. which I think is part of the, the fun of fun with that, but also towards the end, we have a spread where we kind of show kennedy getting it on with like all the video game archetypes we didn't get to yes um some of those i'm frankly surprised past legal <laughs> but <laughs> we, we had you, to change a couple but we, we didn't have to change too many i guess I say, you literally thing, had like the big daddy and i was like oh he went there i see <laughs> yeah with a, a a vibrator hand right right like right a, yeah. oh my gosh and also the, the Master Chief is basically yep. just Master Chief. Yep. Yeah, I, I was surprised we got that one through too. Um, I'm trying to think of the one we had to change, but I can't remember because I was like, this got flagged, but Master Chief didn't. 
Um, I guess a fighting video game level would have been kind of fun because oh, yeah, like Street I Fighter or yeah, yeah. I can't play them so much now. I mean, like yeah, I'll I'll mess around with them for fun. But as a kid, I was a big Tekken person and Virtua mm-hmm. Fighter and yeah. all that. It didn't really stick with me into adulthood. But if if we'd had like one more level or another little aside, it probably would have been fighting games because we didn't really touch on that. Maybe for the sequel. <laughs> I don't know that there's a sequel coming for this. I think we we uh, expended all the. We're in our refraction period still. For this <laughs> um, but actually, Daryl and I have talked about doing another erotic story at some point. I think it would it would be different. Uh, Kennedy story is done, but um, it it would be fun to to kind of do something in the same. That was my little follow up question: is where's more gay erotica, and how can I pay you more immediately to make that? <laughs> because it was very in- it, like. It was just everything that my brain go, like thinks about. And I was like, damn it. This person really captured that. <laughs> it's well, emotional. It's gamer. It's hot. It was great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, my whole thing. And, and so my editor for that was um, Ari Yarwood, who's no longer at Oni. But um, Limerence, their erotica imprint, was really Ari's baby. And um, one of the ways we started talking was actually because Ari had reached out to Teeny Howard, um, who's a good friend of mine. And one of the things Ari told Teeny is that they weren't getting a lot of pitches from gay men. They were getting pitches about queer men, but they weren't mm. getting pitches from queer men. Um, so I really just wanted to do something as authentically gay to, you know, to my experience and to my friend's experience that I could and, you know, just pump it full of that authenticity. It's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard book to talk about. Yeah. You get those puns in baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, switching gears a little bit, you know, at the start of this podcast, we mentioned uh, your good friend, uh, Steve Orlando, was our first creator crush. Friend and of you me, got my good friend of me. Good friend of me. Uh, <laughs> I can actually see that. Can, that's actually Adam's and my uh, dynamic. The too. Katy Perry and Taylor Swift of gay comic book writing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of mean, actually. Yeah, I, was say, I don't think I like either. I thought they made up. I don't know. I was going to say Azalea Banks and Grimes. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. No, that's, that's even meaner. That's, that's mean. Right. But I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you've got two wonderful yet vastly different graphic novels together. You've got Party and Prey, which we talked to uh, Steve Orlando about quite a bit. And then Rainbow Bridge, which you referenced just a few minutes ago that Adam and I both recently read. And my God, it was emotional. I've never had a uh, like a pet like that like die but I was like oh my god I'm like if I ever get a dog or a cat like I'm just already like pre like freaking out about them you know passing on but mostly can you talk a little bit about your collab- collaborative process with another writer yeah and actually it's interesting with me and Steve because uh, you know there are some like well-known um, regular duos in comics uh, Colin and Jackson who are you know on on Captain America this week and yeah um and uh, Conrad and, and Becky are, are on a couple of different things at DC. Steve and I have actually done every project we've done together in a different approach. So we, we were writing Party and Pray at Rainbow Bridge at the same time, alternating chapters, which was a big tonal shift. <laughs> um, but thankfully, Aftershock was like, yeah, sure, we'll sign you up for, you know, an adult erotic thriller, like violent thriller and an all ages dog book at the same time. Uh, and when it came to Rainbow Bridge, because I have more experience in the kids world, um, I used to work for Random House Children's Books as an editor. Mm-hmm. I've done close to like 60 kids books uh, for different properties. I took the lead more on Rainbow Bridge and Steve took the lead more on Party and Pray um, because he had more experience with adult comics at the time. 
<clears throat> but we have a very close collaboration because we're good friends. Um, and also Steve has collaborated with quite a few writers, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson and, and Vita and all sorts of folks. So he's pretty practiced at it, but it, it's a nice process. We, we beat out the story together. Well, I'm glad we're not talking about cheater. Code. Hey, we moved on from uh, cheater. Yeah. Code, Steve. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Quick vomit break for saying that in relation <laughs> to Steve Orlando. Um, but we, you know, we break the story together and then it really depends on the project. Yeah. So on rainbow bridge, I, I went away and I, I wrote it and then Steve, um, you know, took kind of like the second eye and, and did a pass on it. Party and Pray, Steve did the panel breakdown and then I did the dialogue. So it can, it can go very differently. And the next project we're doing together, um, which we spent some of this weekend figuring out uh, and we just got an offer on last week, uh, we'll probably write in a completely different method. Can't wait to read that when that happens. But you've got a lot of, um, you know, we've talked a lot of, a lot of your content and uh, it's pretty diverse. You know, you've got sweet, <laughs> scary happy dirty as we've, yeah. we've talked about is there a specific like genre or style of tone that you like prefer the most yeah i mean i guess even before i had a lot of published work under it i always considered horror my home um horror is kind of like one of my earliest loves and it's what i have the most passion for um but i just never really chose a lane <laughs> like mm-hmm. i i thought i would need to sooner into my career but so far I just keep doing all of it and no one has told me no yet (laughs) (laughs) um I you know I have a very adult horror project coming out next year creator own comic I have a middle grade novel coming out this year so I'm still just really doing I I did a My Little Pony book last month like an an early reader so I'm kind of just still doing all of it um that's the fun of writing to me is is switching lanes and doing these very different things. If, if you know, um, lightsaber to head, I had to choose, I would probably say, leave me in the horror world. That's where I would want to, to explore the most and, and spend the most time in. Um, I do Razor Blades, the horror magazine with James Tynan. Um, that hardcover is coming out this summer. And like I said, I have more horror around the, around the corner next year. So if I had to choose, that would be the one. Great. Well, and we uh, did get a chance to read Night Train, which was, uh, you know, really fun, really interesting, uh, very creepy uh, sort of look. I, I'd like to consider myself as Homo Superior's resident horror expert, but I think it's because nobody else watches horror, really. <laughs> um, but you've really contributed to these anthologies, both as a writer and, as you said, as an editor. You know, are there, of these two jobs, is there really one you more prefer? Um, we're giving a lot of either-or questions right now. We're <laughs> making you decide, but you know, as you, with going down that horror bridge, but just talking about editing and writing, do you, do you find love on, on one side more than the other? No, I mean, I like both. Like, again, my whole career has kind of been defined by like not choosing, yeah. <laughs> but of course, you know, I like the freedom that comes with being a writer and, and getting to build something from the ground up. Um, but I do find my experiences as an editor to be really additive to my experience as a writer. Um, you know, I'm the editor of Department of Truth at Image Comics and, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I like to say that, you know, my job as an editor is not to, because it can be tricky if you're doing both, right? Because your job as an editor is not to tell your creators how you would write the book. And especially in the instance of something like Department of Truth, James knows how to write comic books. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm not going to overrule that. 
my job is to bring out the best version of the story that James and Martin and Aditya are trying to tell. So on something like Razorblades, my editorial duties varied a lot depending on the team. In some instances, I was working from pitch all the way through to final art to really help these creators refine their vision for a story. In others, it was more about finding someone James and I really admired and saying, hey, do you want to do something? Give me an idea of what you're going to do and then get off to the races. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's nice to be able to learn from other creators, to see how the sausage is made, to have a hand in, in shaping those stories um, but I think, you know, if, again, if forced, <laughs> I, would, I would focus on the writing side because that's my chance to tell my own stories and to put stuff out in the world. Got it. Well, yeah. And kind of doubling down on night train. What did that guy find on the train? I need to know. Steve. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the point, right? You leave it open-ended. Um, one of my favorite things about short stories and why I was really glad that TKO, uh, committed to those and, and why I love working at Razorblades so much is that you can have a vague ending in a short story. You can have something open-ended. If you ask a reader to commit to 400 pages and then you end it on a question, you're going to have a lot of unhappy readers. Or, you know, very similar to Night Train, Night Train is a dark story. It's mm. not, you know, there's no triumph over trauma or mm. badness or, um, you know, the, the negative things in life. If you invest 500 pages or 10 issues into a story that ends with only bad things happening, <laughs> you know, your reader does not feel rewarded by that. And that's something that Stephen King's talked about before. And it's why a lot of Stephen King's books, no matter how dark they get, usually end on a very hopeful note because right. that's your reward for making it, you know, five to 1200 pages is not to just feel bad for the rest of the month. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I do, Night Train gave me very good vibes around like sort of scary stories to tell in the dark. Like you're right, the, the sort of short story open-endedness of, you know, just the the what could happen next. Um, do you have a particular favorite horror movie, book, comic? Oh, man. I mean... Or one of your favorites. I know we always yeah, yeah, play yeah. this game and then I was always like, oh, no. <laughs> no, it's tough. I mean, so my favorite movie of all time is Alien, followed very Ooh, closely so by good. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, you know, those are popular answers but they're popular for a reason Um, those are very big for me when it comes to prose the horror author that opened the door for me was Clive Barker Mm. Um, so books of blood when I was a kid I was very scared of horror Mm. I liked vaguely spooky things you know I thought the universal monsters were cool I liked Halloween but I was very easily scared I did not watch scary movies um, until I was 12 or 13 and I read books of blood and that's Barker's first big short story collections. Um, that really changed me. And especially seeing a queer man doing these very unabashedly queer stories, um, that, that was so eye-opening at 13. And I think it's very formative to how I view existing as a queer creator in the world um, because there's room for all sorts of stories. But because I started on things like Books of Blood and um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch mm-hmm. and, and things like that, I, as a reader, am not, or viewer or what have you, yeah. my priority is not, I want to see positive representation. I want a story that's going to reaffirm me. My, mm-hmm. my priority is, you know, I want to see queer people in, in all their multifaceted, good, sure. bad, ugly, disturbed, whatever. Um, And I mean, it sounds condescending, but 
sometimes I talk about it with other friends, like I think there's kind of like queer 101 and that's very useful and it's very needed, but I'm on, yeah. I was on, I was on 102 by the time I was 15. Yeah, yeah. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just because of what I was exposed to when I was younger. My parents really let me guide my own media education. Like no one was looking over my shoulder. Um, I remember like a Borders Books guy, an employee trying to tell my dad that the authority was not appropriate for me. And my dad was like, well, you know, he can make his own decision. So like, I'm a, you know, I'm a 13 year old reading the authority and maybe that's a little young, but it, it helped open my eyes to other, other sorts of things. So that makes sense. Did you watch? Did you watch the new Texas Chainsaw on Netflix? Yeah, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> normally, out of professional courtesy, you know, I would not criticize another creative. Right, right, work. right. It, it was the worst thing I've ever seen, and ev- everyone involved should be barred from making movies. But Sally came <laughs> back for all of five minutes. Don't forget. Uh, you know, listen, that actress was a good choice. Yeah, uh, everything that happened with the character was a bad choice. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, we've collectively in the podcast have been consuming comics, at least for me, since the 80s, I'm the old man of the bunch. You've been in the industry for a while. So let's just all proclaim that we're all subject matter experts and equally famous and important. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding there. But, you know, giving you a crystal ball, what do you predict is going to happen in the comic industry over the next few years? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, that's Big time question. <laughs> yeah. This is what the a, business what a, stuff. <laughs> what, a, what a simple question. Um, <laughs> I would say I actually feel the least confident that I know that I, than I have in years. And I think that's due to a multitude of factors. If you had asked me that question five years ago, I would probably say something about digital. I would say something about web comics. I would say something about moving beyond print. However, We've seen in the last couple of years that that kind of quote unquote Wednesday warrior fan is still really driving a huge percentage of the industry. The people who show up and they want to buy four covers and they don't even necessarily want to read the issue, but they want to frame the cover. That person is still doing a lot to to keep us going and and to keep people interested. Um, I think it's also, you know, if I can take a step back and try to be objective, Half a decade ago, we thought books like Saga, The Wicked and the Divine, and and also crossover hits like Squirrel Girl were going to irrevocably change the industry. And not all of those readers stuck around. And they're looking for the next book that is going to be that entryway. So I think none of this is negative. I think that the next couple of years is going to mean taking stock of things we took for granted taking stocks of stock of big, bold assumptions we made and thinking on our feet about how to activate and keep happy different segments of the readership because there was not a sea change where one kind of reader gave way to another. Mm-hmm. What we saw was that there's a mix, it's an evolving mix, it's a changing mix, and we can't think of it as a clean baton handoff. Um, But the other thing I think is going to be interesting is that a lot of things happen in kind of 20-ish year cycles. And we're seeing that now, of course, with a lot of 90s nostalgia, the the book I am writing, you know, is a celebration of the 90s. I'm really curious what that's going to look like as we cross into the 2000s. And comics is maybe even behind 
general culture and nostalgia because you know zoomers are really into the early 2000s now like that's mm-hmm. the aesthetic that's that's what's coming back and and comics is like let's celebrate the books from the early 90s so we we're kind of off kilter with the the world at large or you know at least american pop culture at large and uh, i'm really curious what it's going to look like when the generation raised on the authority and the ultimates and uh, you know, leading up to civil war being the biggest thing ever. I'm really curious what it's going to be like as more of those people enter the industry and also not just enter the industry, but get positions of power and influence. Because there's never a problem with finding younger creators. However, that doesn't mean that those of us on the younger-ish, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting that fulcrum where I can't say that anymore, but those of us on the younger-ish end of the spectrum it's not that we're not here. It's that we don't necessarily have a lot of influence over things. So I think it's going to be curious to see what happens as more of us start getting that influence. So um, when you said early 2000s, I was really hoping Grant Morrison would come back and write X-Men again because <laughs> their, their new X-Men is one besides the Hickman era and like what's happening right now. And even, you know, House of 92 is like was my heyday for the X-Men, even though I, I started reading the X-Men books in the the 80s but you know you talked a little bit about digital and this is something that like we've ranted about at least i've ranted about specifically on our podcast is you know we buy comics on comiXology mostly you know um i used to do the long boxes and like i just don't have a space anymore to like buy mm-hmm. a lot of print and you know amazon bought comiXology a while back and they've in the last few months have changed the interface where like for someone like me who's been reading comics most of my life um, I'm having a hard time like navigating, like the, the way purchasing the books, reading the books, you know, when it used to be so user-friendly and the fact that it's now tougher, it just, it makes me sad that, you know, a newer reader coming in to discover whatever the next Miss Marvel is or the next saga, the next Sandman, you know, and they don't want to go to a, you know, they don't have a comic store to go to. There may not even be a Barnes and Nobles that they can go to, you know, they don't want the print. They want to read it digitally. Uh, just like the way they read books on Kindle, um, like this is just going to be tougher for them. So um, I, I really appreciate the really honest answer that you gave. Yeah, and well, listen. Uh, it, well, any retailers listening to this, plug your ears now. <laughs> I am an all I am an all digital reader for the exact reasons you listed. It's it's convenient. I don't have the space, and it it's nice to just bring my iPad around. Yeah. Um, I still buy lots of stuff at comic shops. <laughs> just not I'm not the single issue so much. Right. And the comicsology change. Not only was it massively inconvenient, um, I, I think it was a, a scary reminder that a lot of the things we take for granted are ephemeral and get, can get taken away. Comixology, as it existed before the redesign, was an extremely well-functioning website that was mm-hmm. very easy. It Also, I mean, this is me getting on my soapbox, but mm-hmm. almost every website has gotten worse in our lifetime. Yes. The internet is less fun and less easy to use than it was when I was 15. And that's bizarre and awful. And Comixology, I think, was one of those rare websites that had just steadily improved. It was such a great resource for looking up other work by creators you liked, for looking up uh, art samples if you were an editor, for, for dozens of things. And to have that get pulled out from under us overnight was a reminder like, oh, this, that can go away. <laughs> like this can go away. Things that we think are taking us the next step can go away at any time. Um, so I do think that was chilling. But the other, the other side of that is that we've also seen over the years that 
the prophesized like switch to digital didn't happen in the same numbers you know it, right. it, it helped a very small handful of books but more or less the books that succeed in a comic shop are the same books that succeed on comiXology which i think is an interesting thing to consider and even again this is no insult to any other creators but online followings and online fame and building an audience on twitter also doesn't really translate mm-hmm. to comic sales I, sure. I think something we're going to have to reckon with in the next couple of years and it's something i think publishers already are figuring out is that twitter for as loud as it can feel in your head it is such a tiny percentage of the it's the not real life it's not real life it, yeah it is such a tiny segment um and, and actually you know wolverine's a hilarious example because Listen, I, I like Wolverine. I think he's a great character. There's a lot of interesting stuff about him. If you go on Twitter, you would think Logan is the most hated character yeah. in Marvel's history. And then you go into a comic shop and you see why he still supports, you know, four or five titles. Right. So, yeah. it, it's, again, none of these are good or bad. It's, I think it's something that we just have to consider and, and keep in perspective. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that's obviously going to be coming up in the industry still is the idea of queer representation and the status of that in comic books. So um, we're a queer podcast. You're a queer creator. You know, where do you see it right now? Where would you want to see it go? What's your kind of take on that? You know, honestly, right now, I, I do think that there is a cool balance of kind of what I talked about earlier, where we do have books that are affirming, that are positive representation. And we also have books that are allowed to get a little messier. And it dovetails back to what I said about Twitter, where, again, if that's the loudest voice in your head, you're going to think that a certain type of story should should dominate the shelves completely. But thankfully, I do think we are reaching a little bit more of a balance where, Mm -hmm. especially in the young readers sphere, there are lots of books that are affirming that are good representation, that are a good good thing to hand to a younger person who's questioning themselves or questioning right. the response they're getting in the world. But personally, the most exciting thing to me at my stage in my life is that the first two substantial monthly books I was offered has nothing to do with my identity as a gay man. It has mm-hmm. to do with what kind of stories I can tell, um, which I, I hate the like, what I'm not trying to say is that like, I, you know, I'm a, a creator first and a gay man second. <laughs> My identity does define how I move through the world. It informs the kind of stories I tell. It informs how I am treated and and how I I view things. But it doesn't mean that I only want to get hired to write the adventures of, you know, Rainbow the Gay Guy. (laughs) Right. I I want to get to do that and tell messed up horror stories and tell, you know, superhero stories that are primarily about punching and tell, you know, whatever. Well, I think you're really spot on. I think you said earlier around like the 101, 102 kind of culture in the sense that like, yes, those are inherently extremely necessary and will always be necessary, especially while there's such sort of like real life social justice issues and imbalances in the world. But at the same time, to in terms of what equality or equity looks like, and I think to your point is being able to actually be able to tell any story you want as a queer creator and not just have to tell, you know, that standard story to make sure that everybody has that journey because as sooner or later most people are going to graduate and people keep up and like we were just talking about with the industry wanting to go into 
and grow this industry, we want to have more and more people so they can go deeper and deeper into comics rather than just saying, well, this is the same story I read 10 years ago kind of situation. Absolutely. Sorry, I just knocked my septum ring out. So I, was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, are you doing poppers on our podcast? Because <laughs> we're not mad. You just have to share. <laughs> Cheater code is over, Steve. Jesus. <laughs> No, uh, now I'm distracted by thinking about uh, popper jokes. Um, <laughs> I, so what you said is dead on, is that if the only stories you're offering to an audience are the on-ramp stories, yeah. then eventually you just have a pileup because there's nowhere else to go. Like, it, and that's why I say, you know, when I say 101 or 102, it's, it's not meant to be condescending or to say mm. one is, is better than the other. You just really do need that next place for the reader to go, or you read the one story, you say, okay, good, got it, moving okay. on. Um, and there's so much still to be done. You know, I can speak to my perspective as a gay man. However, if you want to talk about trans creators in the industry or, you know, gender nonconforming or even, um, you know, the DC just announced that Connor Hawk is, is going to be confirmed asexual and, yeah. um, uh, Ted and Roe, uh, who are doing that story, got a wonderful response and a lot of unnecessary hate. So it's certainly not like we've, you know, we haven't. We made it. Put the. Yeah, right. It's there's <laughs> yeah, no right. mission accomplished there. Yeah, but right, I, I do right. think that we are seeing a very cool, multifaceted effort, um, and and it works both ways. Like I'm excited that DC is putting so much effort behind showcasing a very clear and explicit um, array of identities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got characters representing so many different things. However, I'm equally excited that right now in the X-Men office, we have multiple queer men, queer women, non-binary people who are telling stories that involve characters who are queer and stories that involve aliens and knights and, you know, Mr. Sinister. Well, I guess that's redundant when I say people who are great, <laughs> but uh, to me, both of those things are exciting because one of my biggest fears, my first published writing was in 2014. And one of my biggest fears back then was that I would get a chance to go to a publisher and do a very special gay story, you know, very special in capital letters. <laughs> and that would be it. And then I would, I would never get a call again. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was like, okay, maybe I'll get to write, you know, a North Star miniseries and that'll be the one thing I ever do for Marvel. And that would be an exciting thing to do, but I'm very glad that at this moment in time, I don't feel like that cage is, is closing in on a lot of us. Well, um, despite what the CDC says, COVID's still rampaging, but conventions <laughs> are back. They're back. Do you have any big plans for the rest of the year to go to conventions and where can we, I mean, the fans come and stalk you? I will be at FlameCon, which uh, yeah, we will too. Yay! <laughs> I'm really excited. I, I've gone to FlameCon every year, and in 2020, I bought a table to launch Cheater Code, and I had 80 copies of Cheater Code shipped to my house, and then FlameCon got delayed <laughs> indefinitely. Uh. So it's no longer the launch of the book, <laughs> but I'm really, I'm really excited to bring that and Party and Pray and some of my other books to FlameCon and, and table at a show that I've been going to since it was in a, a way too hot uh, ballroom in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and then I think I'll, I'll, yeah, I've been at all of them. Yeah. I think I'll be at New York Comic Con. I'm not tabling there, um, but I will likely go. My boyfriend is a very talented cosplayer. Um, oh. 
folks can follow him at omg underscore j-u-n-i omg juni um he's a very talented cosplayer so cons for me are just as much about making sure he doesn't poke anyone's eye out with his like <laughs> mercy wings as it is to like go around and, and do the whole comic thing love it uh well so we're on to our final segment which is where we get mad about you so uh <laughs> let's play some favorites we talked horror story um but we didn't i think call this out during cheater code what's your favorite video game series my favorite video game series is pokemon i know that's an easy answer but it's been with me since i was a child and that's you, why did it, you play not... rcs is that yeah that's a new spinoff right Ar- yeah I, w- I watched my boyfriend play it so that yeah. i haven't played that one yet at this point in my life the joke is that like if a video can't if a video game comes out in 2022 you can expect me to finish it in 2025 (laughs) i'm i'm no longer a timely video game player um but yes i would say my two favorites are elder scrolls and pokemon Uh, love it uh what about superhero oh man well my favorite x-men are emma frost and dazzler good choices Yes. Like the pens. I love it. Uh, sci fi movie. We said Alien. Let's go. Let's go. The Thing and Event Horizon. So, Ooh, crazy. Staying, on, staying on the sci fi horror vibe. The rest of the podcast, you won't need any eyes. Uh, musician and album. Ooh, um, my favorite musician of all time is Cher. She was my first concert. Um, my favorite newer musician is unfortunately Grimes. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't quit her. Um, I wish I could. My favorite album of all time is probably Static Age by the Misfits. Mm-hmm. I you're contain, like really, I contain okay. multitudes. Yeah, yeah, well, and I was also like, you're really prepared with these answers. Usually I feel like people are like, oh, oh, it's such a bad, <laughs> like, you're ready. Well, I feel um, like I had such loaded pauses while talking about the future of the industry that I'm, <laughs> I want to make sure these feel fun and fast. <laughs> there we go. What about food? What about food? Oh, pasta. Yeah. I, so I've been a vegan for uh, almost 20 years now. Um, and my boyfriend asked me the other day if I could only eat one thing for the rest of my life, it would just be pasta with vegan butter and salt. Oh, yeah, good. I was just about to say white sauce or red sauce, but it sounds like nothing. Uh, and then, it? hey, now there we go. And then in the, uh, to wrap up our cheater code ongoing joke, uh, porn star. Um, Kennedy is named after Kennedy Carter. Uh, who is no longer active, but um, when I was living in the East Village, he used to go go dance at Eastern Block. The club oh, was, yeah. Block. Yep. That was owned by Anderson Cooper's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I don't know if yes. they're together, but and now it's Club Coming, owned yep. by Alan Cumming. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kennedy Carter, I have a very sweaty photograph of when I went to see him, and I was just <laughs> like, oh. So that's why um, Ken in Cheater Code, his full name is Kennedy. Love it. Well, we're going to do a quick Mary Fuck Kill lightning round. So it's really quick. <laughs> okay. So first up, Mario, Luigi, and Wario. Ooh, fuck Wario, uh, marry Luigi, and kill Mario. Nintendo right, never... That really tracks. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to prejudge, but I'm like, that tracks for you. All right. <laughs> Nintendo uh, is never going to let me do another book. <laughs> I would play that game, though. I would play that game. <laughs> um, okay, moving to horror. Uh, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers. Oh, uh kill michael myers um fuck freddy krueger from before they confirmed he was a pedophile just when he was creepy <laughs> and uh, marry 
uh, Jason, specifically Jason lives when he's an electrified zombie? Oh my God. Uh, I think I may know the answer to this one, but I got to ask Cyclops, Wolverine, Gambit. Ooh, uh, I would kill Wolverine because I don't have to feel bad about it. I would marry Cyclops and I would fuck Gambit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's fair and also with wolverine when you kill him he'll just get resurrected right yeah well i mean anybody these days yeah but, uh, wolverine you you feel especially not guilty about <laughs> yeah and then our final one uh going back to cheater code frank dash or the alpha epsilon version of ken <laughs> i would oh i would have to oh no that's so hard oh <laughs> a, a four-way Oh, all right, all right. I'm not marrying any of them, but we can have a four-way. There, love it. I got. I really have to thank you for my daddy fetish. That Frank was the first character he interacted (laughs) with. I was like, oh, this book is. When I was, I read it for me. When I read it before you did, I was like, Adam's gonna fucking love this book so much. (laughs) I was like, you need to read this immediately. Harold Toe is a master craft in artistry because I was like, that dude is so fucking hot. Uh, Daryl is amazing, and he gets full. There was not a horror level in the first draft that was daryl's request he wanted to do a creepy level so he gets full credit for for the whole first oh. chapter there that yeah. that hill would be anything but silent if i was, <laughs> there was frank i think uh thanks again steve for joining us on creator crash we're looking forward to the rest of house of 92 steve where can our listeners find you and is there anything else you want to plug yeah, well, I really want to plug Archer and Armstrong Forever, which is the ongoing series I'm launching at Valiant next month. Um, Marcio Fiorito is drawing it. Um, Alex G, because I can't pronounce his last name, is coloring it. And my good friend Haas is lettering it. Um, it is my first ongoing series. We are having so much fun with it. Uh, and Archer and Armstrong are a lot of fun. And we got wonderful art like this David Talaski uh, cover with, oh, with uh, that's beautiful. beautiful. Uh, the big beefcake going on. Um, so that's coming out next. We'll month. get that's a photo big... for it on the for our Instagram. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I really hope folks will check that out. Um, this summer, the second volume of Spider Ham comes out from Scholastic, uh, which I do with Shadia Amin. It's very goofy. I have completely run out of pig puns. I've used <laughs> them all. Um, and then, yeah, the rest of X-Men. I, I have some other fun stuff coming up, you know, maybe at Marvel, who knows, but I can't talk about it just yet. So I hope folks check out the rest of X-Men 92. It only gets wilder from the first issue. The Jubilee reveal is nothing compared to what's coming. Well, um, I, I'm glad you mentioned Archer and Armstrong because I was a big Valiant head for a while and then I mm-hmm. kind of dropped off. So this is a great reason for me to get back into reading Valiant. Yeah, that's really the point of this year is, is to take stock of that line and to, to launch new accessible. So whether you liked Archer and Armstrong before or you've never read an issue of their book before, um, I, I think you will have a lot of fun with this one. And then, yeah, yes. folks can find me at Steve underscore Fox on Twitter, except I recommend everyone stay off of Twitter as I'm <laughs> trying to do. And at stevefox.com, which I, I keep really updated. And often um, books appear there before I can officially announce them because the covers have already fed out to Amazon. So once in a while, folks will find a secret if you check in. Ooh, nice. Love it. As for us, we're on Twitter at Homo Superior X and Instagram at Homo Superior Podcast. If there are other great writers, artists, and all things nerd culturistas you'd like to hear us chat with, make sure to slide into our DMs. We've been Homo Superior. Thanks so much for listening.